So what you heard there was the uh, NHL on Versus uh, theme song from uh, that ran from 2005 to 2010 uh, when it was the Outdoor Living Network and then Versus. Uh, for those of you in the United States, you definitely remember those times as being some interesting times for hockey broadcasts. Because, but at the same time, hey, it was it was pretty cool because the NHL finally started to get a what you'd consider to be a normal and dedicated flagship for uh, coverage. So. Whatever, but that's uh, once again, uh, like we tried to with the themes. That's where we're going to be this uh, day for our subject and our talk today. Uh, those uh, time frames starting there in the uh, 2000 uh, mid 2000s to 2010. So all right, all right, all right. Okay, I'm no McConaughey, but uh, that's a rather welcoming phrase, no matter who you are. So I'll just start off and say I'm Daniel Lambert, and this is from the Point. It's great to have you here to go through another great hockey book. And if you survive Thanksgiving for all my listeners in the States, then I'm sure you'll be happy you tuned in this week because I am very excited for this episode. Uh, it's going to be a little different than normal. Uh, and because of the access I got and uh, the direct line to the author of uh, this week's featured book uh, and the information that he provided me directly, which was just outstanding. Great, great experience. I'm happy to share with everybody. So for those of you who haven't figured it out yet, I'm a Minnesotan, sure, yeah, you can tell by the way I talk, uh, but yeah, uh, and I'm a really big fan of hockey because of that, I mean, like a lot of other people from the land of 10,000, um, I just really, over the years, have enjoyed the sport, and hopefully that's come through in the podcast, but really, my thing is, I, I cut my teeth with the North Stars, and then, uh, you know, when that you know, picked up right when that where that had left off in 2000 when the Wild got reestablished um, and started in St. Paul. So over the years between the North Stars and the Wild, there's been no shortage of memorable characters for uh, professional hockey in Minnesota. But when I walk around the XL Energy Center, I see one blast from the past on the back of more jerseys than anyone else's name. And that name is Bugard for the former Wild enforcer Derek Bugard. Aptly nicknamed the Boogeyman, Derek was an imposing enforcer from 2005 to 2011 in the NHL. His size was the first thing that I noticed when I started watching Derek. He six foot he was six foot seven inches tall, weighing a hefty 265 pounds. The mere sight of Derek was scary, for sure. Um, and to add that he trained in boxing in the off season, like legit boxing training. Uh, it, it was that combination that made anyone not want to come within a mile of the guy uh, or even messing with any of his teammates that would incur his wrath and meant that you probably had to fight the uh, towering Bogard. So if you're a hockey fight fan, then you definitely know the legend, and you've seen it firsthand in the damage and punishment that Derek was able to inflict. He did his job so well that he became one of those players who was just such a deterrent to the other team and such a motivator to the home crowd that he was one of the many energy producers and policemen all in one. Uh, and that policeman role is very appropriate considering da Derek is the son of an RCMP officer as well, as you'll find out as we dig into Derek's life. But as with most enforcers, uh, Derek's triumphs on the ice came with a big hefty price. The damage done to his body was extreme because as much punishment as, he, punishment as he dealt out, he was receiving just as much in return. The typical enforcer injuries to the hands and brain were especially bad in piling up for Derek during his career. To treat the debilitating pain that team doctors would prescribe powerful and addictive painkillers. They offered Derek a respite from his injuries, but would cause him problems in the form of addiction which would ultimately lead to his downfall in hockey and eventually his death on May 12th of 2011. Derek's story and downfall seem to be seem to have come from what you would call an enforcer enforcer's problem. But to simply say that, uh, you really don't capture the whole arc as to specifically why Derek's life had to end the way it did in an overdose of Percocet mixed with alcohol. And a series of articles written for the New York Times a small time after his death, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter John Branch sought to initially to unlock the story of who Derek was and in the course exposed to the world the factors that created, created by Derek and those around him that caused his death. 
after the articles, Branch realized he had so much more to tell about Derek and that he decided to tell the whole story of Derek in the book he wrote, Boy on Ice, The Life and Death of Derek Bogard. That book, which garnered so much praise, is the subject of this week's episode as we get ready and set for the warm-up. I'm Brent Burns uh, with the Minnesota Wild, and we're here with Derek the Boogeyman Bogard. Enforcer, but uh, I was his roommate and I know him as a teddy bear, so let's uh, let's get to know him a little bit more and uh, we'll see what you guys think. The Boogie, uh, what's, uh, what's your favorite city you go to on the road and why? Favorite city? I think it's uh, Vancouver. It's a great atmosphere at the rink and everyone hates you and it's, it's just great. What about away from the rink? What's your favorite city? Away from the rink? Yeah, I mean, pretty much Vancouver too. Vancouver, Calgary, yeah, Denver. Newly single yes. uh, this year. Minnesota girls can be happy about that. <laughs> Where do you like to go away from the rink in Minnesota? 112, down, downtown Minneapolis. I mean, since you're all shacked up out in Woodbury, you can't come out to Minneapolis and have, uh, have dinners anymore. You're home cooked meals and you're in bed by uh, 9 o'clock at night. 9.30 family life, it's, uh, you know, it's tough, but you get used to it. So uh, what kind of music do you like? Music? Pretty much anything, you know. I'm, I'm pretty easy, aren't I? I've seen you dancing to uh, Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy. <laughs> Growing up in a uh, small town in Canada, what, uh, what, what was your favorite team and what was your favorite player watching? Uh, I started playing hockey in the Toronto area, and, and uh, my dad was a what? big you Leafs fan. Yeah, didn't you didn't know that? Know that? <laughs> Doug Gilmore and the Leafs uh, were the team uh, team to watch. And, the good old days. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, it, Dougie G. Uh, now you're in the NHL. And you played, this is uh, your second year, you played in the AHL, you played in the East Coast. What's, uh, what's been your favorite moment? Getting drafted, I think, by, uh, by, the, by the team is uh, my favorite moment so far, and hopefully there's uh, a lot more to come. A little disappointed with that answer. I thought it was going to be the first goal assisted by me. Well, I got, the, got an assist on the well, AHL so first goal, first goal here, and yeah, I don't get a well, plug or anything? You know, that's one of them, too. Come on, obviously. I'm a bad roommate. <laughs> So there you go, fans. Uh, it's Derek Bogart. Um, I roomed with him last year. He's an easy guy to get along with. I know he looks scary and he's uh, a big boy, but he's just a teddy bear. He's a good guy, fun guy to have around, and uh, that's why you guys all like him. So there you go. So that was the interview that uh, Derek did with uh, none other than Brent Burns. Uh, they had two were teammates on the wild there um, in Derek's second year. And you could tell one thing that I gathered from that, and you can tell, is that Derek was just a really soft-spoken guy, kind of a gentle giant, I mean, for lack of a better term. Uh, and that was really what I gathered when I read Boy on Ice, and I'm sure if you do so too, you'll gather that, that uh, Derek was a really just simple kid from, from Saskatchewan, from the prairies, and, and it really comes through. And so um, I really enjoyed listening to that interview and I think uh, it's important to set up uh, as we talk about Derek who Derek was and just you know yeah we all think of the boogeyman but Derek Bogard was really who you just listened to right there so welcome to the warm-up I just got to ask you this quick question before we get started how many times have you stood up at a hockey game during a fight and cheered I can honestly say I've lost count and I can't I can tell you that I've stood up in both my living room and a few NHL arenas to specifically cheer Derek Bogard when he'd pummel an opponent often her, in an often Herculean effort to help bring the Wild closer to a win or simply just sticking up for a teammate who was unjustly run by the opposing team. Fighting is a part of the game. No matter if you think it should be allowed or not, it's a part of the game, and it has been for a while. Current NHL Commissioner Gary Bentman has said that it's, quote, not allowed because it's penalized. Okay, I'll pause to let you mutter whatever anti-Bentman sentiment you want. But, okay, now that it's over, let's get back to fighting and hockey in the NHL. But we all know that that's just not right, what Bentman said. Because if it was truly not allowed... 
then you'd get more than just a nickel uh, for fighting in, in an NHL game. It can even be said that by arenas playing the Rocky theme song or other music during fights, it's actually encouraged. But turning off your thinking brain and simply looking at it through the sports nut lens inside your brain, you can see where fighting is a fun, necessary part of the game. But to do that would be to ignore the person in the fight, the human being who's receiving and doling out the beating on the ice. That's why Boy on Ice is such a great book. John Branch set out from the beginning to tell the story uh, not of an NHL enforcer who had some tragic issues with addiction, but to tell you the story of a real human boy and who grew into a man who, like us, was a son, brother, and teammate, and asked and to ask the ultimate question as to why his life ended the way it did. It's the humanization of the boogeyman that makes Derek's story important, and Branch and Branch makes you know that where Derek came from and how, you know exactly who Derek was more than just the boogeyman he was Derek Bogart Branch does an excellent job of going back and recounting Derek's life through detailed accounts from the people who shaped him and supported him on his way up the ranks of the hockey world it's their words told to Branch that made the pages fly by for me I saw myself in the shy young Derek who struggled to fit in after moving around a bunch and that's why it's powerful to watch his downfall because all you really see in the end is a human in pain who needed help. Add to it that he was in pain because of the life he worked so hard to build, and you can see how his story is a hard yet important journey to take for anyone, not just a hockey fan, but for anyone to take. At no point in this book did I get bogged down in any details or think not enough was given. Branch leaves no stone unturned in his investigation of Derek's life and the events that led to his death. He talks about the game and Derek's rise in it, and he talks to his friends and family who tell you how Derek was acting and feeling, and also takes the time to explain the science behind his addiction and that of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, that Derek was diagnosed with after his death, a condition that did so much to change his behavior and life. Most of all here in the warm-up, I want to let you know that the entire third period of today's episode will be dedicated to a question and answer session over some of the finer points of the book that John was so gracious to help me produce. It's something that I'm really looking forward to sharing, and I hope in the future that it can be more of a regular segment to get direct access to the authors of the books being reviewed on the show. So please stick around for that segment. I swear you won't be disappointed. So with all that in mind, and with an eye on getting into the Derek Bugard story, I think the best place to start is with what led to his downfall. Sure, in most episodes I've said the best place to start is at the beginning, and we will, but the concentration of the first period will largely be on the idea that Derek's pursuits in hockey became the causes of the factors that led to his death, and introduce you to something that I think is essential to what Branch was trying to accomplish in Boy on Ice, that Derek worked for what others pushed worked for what others pushed and helped him to do what was eventually led him down the road of his death. In other words, fighting in hockey uh, was the cause, uh, the root cause of many of the problems that Derek uh, encountered. So stand by as we drop the puck on the first period up next. Well, if you're a big guy, you can just barrel right through somebody, but Bouchard, Bouchard has to, uh, and all of this, someone wants to fight Bugard and he's not going. Fedorik was grabbing onto the jersey. Here he goes after him now, and we'll see if Bugard takes him on it. Uh, why wouldn't he? <laughs> Boom. There's Bugard. Works the left. Oh, there he is. Oh, boy. He threw an elbow, it looked like, at Bugard, and then Bugard dropped him. Bugard's done that wow. to so many players. He just, he works you with the left hand, and as he's doing it, he comes across with, it's like he's punching you with both at the same time. And... Fedorik, oh man, you Hello. don't, I've said it before, you don't want to be part of somebody's highlight reel. Right here, this is him chasing him all the way down the ice, and Bugard just wants to play some hockey, and then he just, he'll come after him later on here in the corner. Why would he want, why would he want this? 
Well, I don't think he, you know, I, hey, if he had forethought, I don't think he would have done it. But they start going and watch the left hand of Bugard. He works it, and then he finally throws the right. Boom. Here's a, oh, dang. That's too much. That's just, that's just flush to the jaw. Well, it looks like Fedorik will get some extra time for this one just for instigating it because he did chase Bugard all the way down the ice. So that was a replay of what was probably one of the most famous and infamous fights in the NHL's history. And certainly what I would say is um, probably one of the most uh, infamous and gruesome fights of the last 20 years for sure, without a doubt. And that was the fight between uh, Derek Bogard and Todd Fedorik when uh, Fedorik was playing for the Ducks. Uh, Bogard had caught him with a strong right hand and uh, broke the uh, cheekbone orbital of uh, Fedorik, uh, basically punching his face in. Uh, Fedorik to this day still has a scar and uh, some plates and mesh underneath his skin to keep uh, keep everything in his face uh, put together. It's just really crazy to think that someone can punch that hard and Derek did that. And what was crazy about what that did is it just added to the legend of the boogeyman. Uh, when you break somebody's face, if you punch somebody's face in, uh, people are definitely going to avoid you, especially as an enforcer. So welcome to the first period. Um, I just want to start with Derek's story, like I said, as we start to weave into uh, what the central theme of the book is here. Um, so Derek's story really begins before Derek is born with his parents, Len and Joanne Bolgard. Len, as mentioned before, is an RCMP officer who met Derek's mom while going through RCMP Academy in Regina, Saskatchewan. After Len graduated from the RCMP Academy, he was immediately stationed into rural Saskatchewan. And by the time Derek was born, the Bogards were living in Hanley, Saskatchewan. Like many RCMP officers, Len would move every few years to different spots, almost seemingly exclusive in rural Saskatchewan with a small stint uh, near Toronto at one point. Derek would have trouble adjusting at different points. Being the new kid and being the son of an RCMP officer made it hard to make friends, and he was often bullied, if you can believe that. He was thought to have a learning disability and attention problems, so being a good student wasn't much of an outlet for him. Then in his adolescent years, he started to become not just the biggest skid, kid in school or hockey, but the biggest kid by a mile uh, anywhere. Derek found his purpose in those teen years and what he wanted to be, a professional hockey player, and would declare that wanting to be as tough and as feared as fellow Saskatchewan native Wendell Clark, one of his idols. He had plenty of support from the family, especially from Len, who would drive Derek in his RCMP squad car to road games all over the province. He soon found out that his hockey skills were lacking, but his size was a tool uh, to be used to make up for that lack of skill. Derek grew into a physical presence and would fight if need be to stick up for his teammates because that was his job. That was what he was good at. He was using his talents. But everyone describes Derek as not mean, uh, just a kid doing his part for the team. It wasn't a bloodlust, it was something the shy Bogard would do because he liked hockey, and that was his way to play hockey. Still, it was fighting that would be the cause of his first big shot towards his dream to play in the NHL. While playing in Melfort, where the Bogards were living, Derek jumped into the opposing bench to fight the opposing team after uh, completing a fight on the ice. As Len describes it, his son went ballistic in an act that he hadn't seen Derek do before. He was ejected, of course, and as fate would have it, some WHL scouts were there and took notice of Derek. Their giant of Pats, one of those clubs, moved immediately to gain Derek's rights and offered him a spot in their training camp, seeing him as one of those possible fits into their enforcer role. Now, this is an all-too-often tale of the enforcer. The path to professional hockey lay, is laid out, but it's the role of using your fists to get there, and there, that there is no need 
to develop any high skill part of your game at that point. You're going to be an enforcer. That's your ticket. So start getting good at it. Get good at fighting. Get good at being physical. That's what amazes me here is that path of fighting was done at such an early age for Derek. He was 16 at this point and being told that his worth was in being a gladiator, which is a very adult thing, rather than to learn to play a game, a very kid thing to do. To teach a kid that his worth is in beating up another kid, you can see the pressure cooker situation whereby anxiety, fear, and violence start to take over. And what's left is a binary situation where violence is just a job for the uh, student of the game who's just trying to make it to the next level. Add this to the physical beating in a developmental stage of life, and you can see where this could and did, in the case of Derek, lead to some serious issues later. Basically, you fight and you win, or you're out. That's not an easy existence. I think the scars I think it scars more kids than we might ever know. So Derek's road to the WHL would be a bumpy one at first, as he struggled to fit into his role effectively as an enforcer. He backed down from a fight in an exhibition match with the Pats, while he was with the Pats, and would get sent down to their lower tier team to finish the season, only seeing action in thirty five games. He struggled with his coach in that lower tier and getting respect that season and it all came to a head in uh, a tournament in Calgary where he had to call his mom Joanne to come pick him up uh, after he had quit the game after a dispute with the coach about his playing time and Derek cried all Joanne said that Derek had cried all the way back to Regina after that obviously upset it was clear he needed to step his game up he needed to fight more, and he needed to win. So the next season, when he got another shot with the Pats, he would fight 12 times in four scrimmages and play five games with the Pats before being traded to Prince George after losing a fight. Another reminder that Derek was expected to be ruthless or his hockey dreams were over, and he found himself rebuked by the very coaches that he was putting his himself on the line for. Sure, he needed to do his job well like anyone else in the profession, but he was only 17 and just trying to please those around him and do the best he could. After landing in Prince George, Jer Derek would le finally learn to use his fully developed 6'7 frame by the end of his second season with the Cougars and was considered the toughest player in the WHL at that point. That reputation led to the Minnesota Wild using the 202nd overall pick in the seventh round of the 2001 draft on Derek. While in Prince George, Derek started to struggle with his schooling and having difficulties with rules and coursework. It was here, so far away from home, that he, like many junior hockey players before and after him, uh, was filling the time with drinking and partying. As junior hockey players in a small town like Prince George, Derek and his Cougar teammates had the reign of the town and were able to do whatever they pleased. Derek, being a shy kid, found that drinking opened him up, and he found a fun and social side that he often could not, have, could not have ever tapped into because of his shyness. It was at this time, being largely unsupervised, that would start Derek into a life of, that, of drinking that made partying a staple of his social life and caused behaviors that would be problematic later on when combined with other habits and conditions that he would develop. After that season, Derek would play another season and a half in the WHL with Medicine Hat before moving on, on to sign his contract with, with the Wild, who placed him with the Louisiana Ice Gators of the ECHL to finish out the 2002-2003 season. It was here that perhaps Derek's most destructive vice started to take hold. As expected... Years of fighting in the WHL had taken its toll on Derek, and he found that nagging injuries to his shoulder and back were almost too much. Team doctors, in response to that pain, described Derek the opioid-based painkillers that he would eventually use to cope with the pain and become addicted to. As you'll see, the team doctors here, there, and eventually in Houston in the AHL didn't ask too many questions and simply wrote out the prescriptions for Derek without, a, without so much uh, scrutiny as they probably should have given. 
These drugs being prescribed at this time would be the very same that would lead to his death nine years later. Now it's October 5th, 2005. Derek is debuting with the Wild against the Flames. He's poised to take the mantle as the Wild's new enforcer as GM Doug Risebrow and coach Jacques Lemaire see his potential from the outside of training camp. Not only would he have to live up to their expectations quickly for his role on the team, but it would only take a season more before Derek in a fight with Anaheim's Todd Bedorick would break his cheekbone so severely that he caused the need for reconstructive surgery and a metal plate and mesh to be implanted in Fedoric's face. It's probably the most famous fight of the last decade, like I said before, probably the last two decades, uh, and one of the gruesome, most gruesome of NHL history for sure. And it, But what it really did was it gave Derek the clear title of the most feared man in the NHL, and that's a, a pretty big thing for a young man his age especially at that point um, as an enforcer. It was from this point, though, that it started to go downhill for Derek personally. The factors that had built up in his life to this point were about to send him on a downward spiral that eventually cost him his life. Sure, some tried to stop it, but it seemed like there were forces at work against him that were both of and not of Derek's making. We'll talk about those forces and the road that led to Derek's death in the second period up next. Um, can you recall at what point the family came to realize that Derek had a problem, that there was something going on? It uh, wasn't until September of 2009 that uh, we were able to uh, piece together what was going on and uh, realize that Derek had a problem. Did you sense there was something before that? There was. the, uh, the During the month of August uh, 2009, uh, I would talk to Derek on the phone a number of times, and he would explain to me what his plans were. He wanted to go to BC. He wanted to uh, build this uh, log cabin, and he wanted to build cabins around it, et cetera. So you know, for the family to come out and visit him, et cetera. So, and then he would phone the next day, and he would just reiterate what he had told me the day previous, and uh, to not remembering that he'd already told yeah. you. Yeah, and uh, talking to uh, my other sons they had the, the same things that Derek was just repeating himself over the same stories over and over again so and uh, my other one son Ryan had noted on a couple of occasions that uh, Derek's uh, word words were slurred you know that he was incoherent not making any sense whatsoever did so. you put two and two together at that point Len and and deduce that he'd been concussed no no what did you suspect was going on I, I didn't have any idea as to what was going on. It wasn't until I had a, a conversation with, uh, with Aaron that Aaron uh, was, uh, would have been in, uh, oh, in mid, mid-September that I had a conversation with Aaron, and Aaron explained to me what, what was going on. So what did, he, what did Aaron say at that point? What are we, did he, did, were we talking about drinking? Were we talking about prescription drugs? Or were we just no, talking, we're, we're talking about pills. Just about the pills. About pills. Um, basically what had happened was, uh, according to Aaron, was that uh, Derek had shoulder surgery and nasal surgery in April of uh, 2009. And during that time frame, he was prescribed a number of opiates and painkillers, etc. And uh, so he was, uh, the doctor stopped giving him that medication in, in April. And uh, by that time, Derek was addicted to those painkillers. So he uh, went to an ex-teammate, a former teammate, who was residing in New York, and uh, Derek would uh, send money to that teammate, and the teammate in, uh, in turn would mail Derek uh, prescription pills. Oxy was what he Oxy was mailing. Them. Yes. Yeah. So you heard there from Len Bogard himself on an interview for, with Sportsnet, explaining when the family and Len specifically found out that uh, Derek was having an issue with painkillers and. Uh, possibly that uh, he was uh, having some issues that were resulting from some of the brain injuries that he was receiving through uh, playing hockey. Uh, I really think that's a very powerful uh, interview segment when you listen to it because uh, you'll find in the book that Branch, uh, through probably through his interviews with Len, uh, can pinpoint exactly when it became something that was somewhat manageable to when Derek's uh, downhill slide started to lead towards the uh, path that uh, got him uh, uh, towards his death. So starting with the second period, I'd just like to say that, you know, the idea of getting hit in the head 
is something to be avoided. Is It's not really a new concept. But the true effects of those hits and what it does to the human being is certainly something that has grown leaps and bounds over the last two decades. What they have found is that repeated head trauma can, can cause issues with memory, mood, and impulse control. And if not treated, the effects can become more permanent and more pronounced. Add to that the factor that these close that close repetitiveness can exacerbate the problem, you can see how hockey players are certainly in a group that needs to be concerned with head trauma and its effects. So for Derek, in ascending to the throne of the most feared enforcer in the NHL, he had already, he had already been through a long road of head trauma to that point, as you can probably guess through junior and uh, minor hockey. Uh, starting in junior and in his first games with the Wild, by the end of the 2005-2006 campaign, he had 17 NHL fights, according to HockeyFights.com, and probably what I would say to be you know close to another estimated 200 fights in junior, the ECHL, and the AHL. That's a lot of stress on the body, and specifically on the head. As is typical with fighters, Derek was suffering from issues like a bad back, sore shoulder, and constantly injured hands from bare-knuckle punches to opponents, and in some cases, uh, punches that would land into their helmets and visors. His dad, Len, thought about his hands as the primary source of injury and pain from his fighting. Uh, taking a look at pictures of him, you can definitely see. And admits to Branch later on that he largely didn't think of the head injuries uh, that Derek was obviously incurring, and uh, he really didn't think of what their effect was on Derek. Uh, till later. It's also worth mentioning here that Derek himself wasn't really thinking about his quickly growing list of head injuries as evidenced when once asked later in his career how many times he had gotten his quote bell rung or uh, been hit and seen things go black he couldn't really tell a number he he just he, he said almost every time is what he thought. As we know he had had as we know he had had enough brain injuries to cause CTE but it's unclear when that happened. Largely, at this stage in his early career, he was still fairly well-adjusted and in control of things and his impulses in his life. Uh, drinking and pill abuse were there, but they were largely in the background in a manageable state, and his personal relationships were doing fairly well uh, as also. But fast forward to the 2008-2009 season, um, and you can see that Derek had back-to-back -back surgeries on his shoulder and nose late that season. And, of course, he was prescribed opioids to recover. In this case, Percocet for pain management. It's here that we find that Derek's pill addiction starts to get much worse. Being a larger-than-average human and slightly already dependent on opioids, Derek was taking up to 30 pills a day, according to his brother Aaron, who was himself a budding enforcer in the Pittsburgh Penguins organization. Add to the add to his massive intake of pills was that added to that was that the wild team doctors were not keeping track of how much was being prescribed to Derek. At one point, it was said that eight different wild team doctors had given him prescriptions for eleven different drugs. And if that wasn't enough, Derek had found an illicit way to obtain pills from a contact at a local Minneapolis bar, spending thousands to keep his habit and addiction going. His family started to take notice as Len and other family members recall phone conversations with Derek where he was slurring his words and exhibiting signs of uh, memory issues and overall confusion. It was the drugs. Was it the drugs? Was it onsetting CTE? Or was it both? I don't think anyone really could say for sure then, but that summer, in an effort to get Derek back on the straight uh, path, the Wild and Derek's family both got him to go to rehab, which Derek didn't really take too seriously to, and left him much the same uh, frame of mind that he entered in, and thus would continue his uh, pill habit and uh, many of the destructive behaviors that would eventually lead to his death. His drug abuse continued into the next season in 2009-2010. His teammates described Derek as largely listless, but many didn't know why. It was largely known that he would take painkillers but most of his wild teammates had no idea how much he was taking and how he was getting his pills they also didn't know that he went to rehab 
that was a secret that was kept and it maybe could have made a difference and made some of his teammates watch over him a bit with a bit more vigilance had they have known that he was recovering uh, after a stint in rehab but yet alas the team kept it from the rest of the, the team management kept it from the team that summer Derek became an unrestricted free agent and was offered a contract extension by the wild but it was the rangers who would win the contest for Derek's services for 6.5 million dollars over four years that's quite the contract for an enforcer still was it the right move in minnesota Derek had a support system and there were people who there who could watch over him they knew what was going on with him and they knew him very well so they could uh, take care of him and make sure that things were manageable sure there were enablers left and right but it can be said that in minneapolis Derek was somewhat controlled there were guardrails not to mention his life his life there and the people he counted on to keep him grounded were not in New York. So in New York, Derek would start to go even further downhill. He started his time with the Rangers, set back by his own inability to stay in shape over the offseason, mostly due to his partying and not doing the things he needed to do to stay in shape, as he should. As a result, Derek would show up to Rangers training camp about 300 pounds at about 300 pounds and the Rangers coaching staff would put the screws to him in an attempt to get him into shape quickly. Extra practices and weigh-ins added to the stress of being in a new place and on a new team. And if that wasn't enough, Derek got into a scrap with Matt Karkner of Ottawa in November of 2010, which gave him a severe concussion that would end Derek's first season with the Blue Shirts very early. In his recovery from this bad concussion, Derek would be stuck by himself in his Manhattan apartment by in the dark, abusing painkillers and drinking. He also was known to drive to Long Island to meet a dealer to buy some pills when the team's prescriptions would run out, adding to the fire that was his addiction. Depressed and along alone and his career looking to be in jeopardy, Derek slipped into a pretty deep, deep, deep depression. Len would come to visit Derek and described his son as anxious and depressed. Len recalls Derek being so upset at times that he cried in his dad's arms and wondered what he was going to do. At this point, uh, it was at this point that Len and, and others got Derek to go to rehab again, also with the prodding of the Rangers management. Once again, Derek didn't take rehab seriously, and he, would ask, and he would ask for a recess in early May 2011 to attend his uh, sister's college graduation in Kansas. So after being at his sister's uh, graduation, Derek would fly to Minneapolis and would stay at his apartment that he still kept there that his brother Aaron was occupying. The night of May 12th, his brother Aaron, who had been attempting to control Derek's intake of pills, decided to let Derek have one 30-milligram Percocet before he went out with friends. Derek would spend the night drinking and was escorted back to his apartment, still conscious at that point, as his uh, brother Aaron escorted him to sleep. It was, after, it was after that that Derek went to sleep and Aaron left to go to a girlfriend's and then did not return to the apartment until the next morning after picking their other brother Ryan up from the airport. At that point, the two brothers returning to the apartment found Derek not breathing, and Ryan, uh, who was an RCMP officer like Len, explained that it was very clear that at that point rigor mortis had set in and Derek was dead. The aftermath of Derek's death was something that the Bogards uh, felt very deeply, uh, the pain that was involved with that. There was the fact that their son and brother was dead, but it was also the fact that so many people had tried to stop him. In an interview with the New York Times for a documentary they did on the story, Joanne, Derek's mother, says that she felt no one could have stopped Derek's decline that caused his death. He just wasn't ready to accept help yet. And that seems just really unfortunate, especially when you hear it from someone like his mother. And it seemed to speak, that really did speak to me probably the most. When you think about it, Joanne was right. The fact that Derek had CTE made it to where his ability to make the right decisions to stop the behaviors that had led to his death were almost non-existent. Derek's death is a tragedy because 
In the end, sure, it was the overdose that killed him, but the reason behind that overdose was the injuries he sustained while doing what he loved to do and what he had worked all his life to do. So with that, I'm just going to say up next, uh, we're going to get a little more insight into Derek's story from John Branch himself. Uh, the interview that uh, John was so gracious to give me over email, it will be read next in the third period. So stand by. That's up next. Bogard was slow to get off the ice. His nose was bleeding, and he appeared dazed. It would be his last fight for the New York Rangers. Bogard is heading to the locker room. Bogard was diagnosed with a concussion and sat out for the rest of the season. Over his career as a fighter, Bogard had numerous times where he, quote, had his bell rung. You would imagine being double-digit figures. I wasn't concerned about it when he was growing up. and You know, it seems, it seems silly, but I was worried about his hands, how scarred up they were with the knuckles, you know, pushed back, etc. And he had uh, problems with dexterity in his fingers. Like the concussion issue never even crossed my mind. But the damage to his brain had been building over his career. Isolated in his New York apartment, Bogard was experiencing blurred vision, headaches, and severe nausea. He could no longer play hockey and was spending tens of thousands of dollars on painkillers. There were several times that Derek just broke down and cried and you don't know what to do. You know, he's got this persona on the ice that, you know, it's supposed to be his dad, supposed to be looking after him. You know, how did it get so bad? In April, the Rangers sent their million-dollar enforcer to a rehab center in California. And for the second time in two years, he wasn't taking it seriously. You have to accept help. And you have to acknowledge when you have a problem. I'd like to be able to blame someone. <laughs> I can't. So what you heard there is from uh, the New York Times documentary that I've referenced before uh, that is about Derek's uh, life and death. Uh, and a lot of good words there from Len and Joanne Bogard about what happened and kind of what uh, went down in Derek's final days. Uh, it gives you a real insight into just how they felt and what, uh, what, what the circumstances were behind uh, what happened to Derek. So in the third period, uh, like I said, this is a very good treat. I'm very excited um, that uh, we're going to do something special. On a whim, I basically uh, decided to reach out to John Branch. And luckily for me and for you, he decided to uh, answer a few questions about the book and Derek's story. Uh, if there's anyone who's an expert on Derek Bogart, it's John Branch. Um, and you can definitely tell by uh, the questions, uh, by the answers that I'm about ready to read from you. So... Uh, to get, like I said, more insight into the book and more insight into the uh, story of Derek Bogard, uh, we're going to go over a few questions and a few uh, answers from the man himself, John Branch. So without further ado, uh, the first question I asked him was, uh, what, what made you want to write this book? More specifically, what was it about Derek's story that wrote you to write, write Boy on Ice? Branch's answer was, it was based on a series of stories I wrote about Derek for the New York Times. The initial impulse was to simply explain who he was. A guy who, like a lot of enforcers, had become a bit of a caricature. I covered hockey, and I knew enforcers to be much different than their personas. I soon found out that Derek's I soon found Derek's story to be extremely compelling. His boyhood, his parents trying to help him fit in, his discovery by the scouts, the back roads of juniors and the minors, and then his unlikely emergence into Starden. I wanted to illuminate as many corners of his public story as possible. Next, I asked John, I said, uh, Len Bogard, Derek's dad, was an RCMP officer who you point out did a lot of investigation into Derek's death. And you used a lot of that information for the book. What was it like to get that material from him? Do you feel think a lot of that investigation was done by Len because of the guilt he felt about Derek's death? Branch answers, Len really was the other major character in the story. He was driven to find answers out of the guilt that 
any parent would feel. Uh, I could have done, could I have done more or done things differently? Perhaps, but also because he felt it was the most important police work he could do for his son, for others, for himself. The next question I asked John was, one of the things in the book that intrigued me was that it seemed like there were a ton of doctors willing to frivolously, frivolously write Derek prescriptions for opioids. Why do you feel that they kept doing that, and what responsibility do you feel they have for Derek's death? Also, do you feel that they were punished enough, if at all, for their part? Branch's answer was, team doctors are a fascinating subset of this story. It's an honor and a marketing coup to be a team's, to be a quote, team's doctor for a pro sports team. They work for the owners, but are supposed to have the player's best interest at heart. Do those interests always align, or is there conflicts and that cloud conflicts that clouds judgment. Over-medicating is a big issue throughout sports and society, and Derek was both the beneficiary and victim of that. The next question I asked Branch was, I've read a lot about hockey stories about hockey player development, and it always struck me as funny that players in Canadian junior hockey are allowed, and like in the case of Derek, encouraged to fight. Why is Canadian juniors still allow fighting, considered that leagues like the NCAA and the U.S. have taken huge steps to make it illegal with punitive actions that actually defer fighting? I think they've taken measure, uh, branch answers, I think they've taken measures to st stop the stage fights. And I think the trend is heading towards a day without hockey fights. Align more with the other sports like football, soccer, or basketball where they don't stop the game to let the players blow off steam by swinging at one another. Why do they still allow it? Tradition. I think leaders are afraid that hardcore fans would balk and walk away. They know that fighting is an allure for some, maybe especially at low levels. Now that most people recognize that the best of hockey, Stanley Cup, playoffs, Olympics, take place with a few fights, if any. The next question I asked Branch was, I noticed in the book you clue into the fact that fighting is glorified and enhanced in effects in arenas or music on TV or graphics, etc. If fighting is not allowed, like you point out that NHL Commissioner Gary Bentman has said publicly, then why does the NHL allow these fights glorifying extras to happen? That's a great question, Branch says. Also, the NHL likes to point out that fighting is down in the past few years, suggesting that that is a good thing. If less fighting is something to brag about, then why not do anything to nudge the numbers down further? The NHL has not led on the issue of fighting for sure. The next question I asked Branch was, looking at the orbit around Derek, did anyone stand out to you as being able to stop his destructive behaviors, or was Derek simply not able to be reached because of the brain injuries he had sustained? Branch answers, you hit on the silent heart of the book in many ways. What could all of Derek's family, friends, teammates, coaches, doctors done differently? Could one of them saved his life by doing something different? I think there are dozens of people that are still haunted by Derek's death in part because they are haunted by the question, could I have made a difference? After that, I asked John, the Bogards tried to sue the NHL and had their case dismissed in 2017 and on appeal in 2018, where, the N where they said the NHL, where they said, where the NHL had said that they did what was appropriate with the information that was known at the time. Do you feel like that was the case? Do you think anyone in the NHL orbit knew that Derek was a drug abuser considering that team doctors kept giving him this stuff and it's thought that some in the Rangers organization even had their own suspicions? Branch replies, plenty of people in the NHL knew Derek had a problem and was at risk. The question that still lingers is, what was their obligation to help stop it? The next question I asked Branch was, 
Has the NHL done enough since Derek's death to ensure that something like this tragedy can't happen again? Branch's answer is very direct. He says, last I checked, the NHL's leadership, many of the coaches, and even the NHL's substance abuse people who oversaw Derek's care are still employed by the league today. Then the final question I asked John Branch was, finally, if you could ask Derek any question after learning so much about him, what would you ask him and why? Ooh, that's interesting. How much long? I would ask him, how much longer did you want to play? And what did you hope to do when your career ended? He'd be 38 now, certainly out of the league. I'd like to know how he truly thought he'd be spending his life. It makes me sad to think about. I think that's very telling, that last part. Um, because you can tell that John Branch got a huge attachment to Derek and Derek's story, as I hope all of you have, even listening to this podcast. And I'm sure you will if you read Boy on Ice. And I hope that um, what you gathered from all those questions and answers were that uh, John Branch saw a human being who uh, basically was left left hung out to dry by either the injuries uh, sustained to his brain that did not allow him to stop the impulsive behavior and destructive behavior that he was doing, or by some of the people in his orbit who maybe could have stopped it. Um, as he answered before, it, it's hard to tell if anybody could have done anything different. Um, and as you heard in the documentary we played before we started, Joanne Bogard thought that maybe there wasn't anything or anyone who could have stopped it. And that's really the tragedy of Derek. I think that's about all for now. That's all the questions and all the interview I asked uh, John. So let's go ahead and move on to the post game. Give this one a wrap up. The National Hockey League says it is serious about preventing and treating concussions and has instituted rules on hits to the head. We would like there to be no concussions. Uh, we uh, uh, realize that in a game where physical contact is a part of the game, played in an enclosed environment, there's no out of bounds, there are going to be injuries. But in response to growing concerns about fighting in hockey, the league says there are no plans to change the rules of the game. You guys, have, I know, have done a lot of work with concussions and being maybe ahead of the curve in terms of the concussion working group. That's right. Um, some of the standards that you've implemented the last couple of years. How do you reconcile that with allowing fighting, allowing... Well, we don't allow fighting. Fighting's punished, penalized. The, the, the issue is whether or not you increase the penalties further. There doesn't seem to be uh, an overwhelming appetite or desire to go in that direction at this point in time. On the part of whom? On virtually all constituent groups that we talk to, including the players. And in their view... Boston University's research is still in its early stages. Part of the issue is the handful of, of samples that they have. You don't know whether or not uh, people would ever suffer effects because some of the preliminary stages were there, and you don't know that if they looked inside of your brain or mine right now what they would find. I think uh, while their work is worthwhile, uh, the people we talk to think that uh, their, their tendency to reach conclusions at a uh, uh, very preliminary stage is great for headlines, but not necessarily advancing the research. That was an interview with Gary Bentman from the same documentary that I played a clip from uh, before the third period that the New York Times produced about Derek's life. And uh, I just want to point out, uh, I found that to be somewhat very uh, chilling and uh, for Bentman to say uh, the interviewer in that, too, is uh, John Branch, just for your information, who interviewed Bentman and his responses. But I want to discuss a little bit more about what he said here as we wrap things up in the post game. So I can say, while I've learned from every single book I think I've ever read in my entire life, uh, Boy on Ice uh, not only educated me like every other book, but it, it, it changed me. I used to love fighting in hockey. I, I like... Like I talked about in the beginning, I cheered many of the fights that Derek was involved in during his time with the Wild. And at the time, I got a lot of entertainment out of it, like most hockey fans do. But now I look back at those fights and I wonder if he gave too much during that fight and if we literally were watching his demise with every punch that he took. That's why 
I thought John Branch was so brilliant in writing this book. He covered all of Derek's life to show you who he was and why his downfall and death were so important. As he said in our discussion, I really feel that John's mission was to, quote, illuminate as many corners of his public stories as possible. And I also feel like it put a human face to the boogeyman. He was so effective in making that connection that I actually teared up reading about Derek's death and its aftermath when I read Boy on Ice. Branch also raises the important questions about the team doctors who abused their powers and the league that looked the other way about it. Do we know that all that might have happened? Do we know that all that might have happened? Sure, but John made us realize it wasn't just a coincidence. Most of all, though, I think that Branch also helps make you realize that Joanne, like Joanne Bogard said in that moment, that nobody was going to stop Derek. Uh, he just hadn't reached that point, and I think even more tragically, he may never have because of his conditions. The NHL will tell you that they do their part to stop brain injuries, that, like the ones that eventually led to Derek's death. But how many stories are there out right now? I mean, think of the names, Steve Montador, Bob Probert. How many more with CTE will it take for the NHL to realize that these players' injuries are real, danger, dangerous, and lead to circumstances that will kill them? It always sticks out to me that soon after Derek's death, Gary Bentman was interviewed by the New York Times for their documentary that I alluded to earlier that was made in 2014. When asked about all the data leading to CTE, he tells Branch directly, the interviewer, that the data is too early and the experts that he has would agree that more research needs to be done. That's Bettman being a lawyer and not the hockey man that he should be. Think about the players who may not be as bad off as Derek was, but are still suffering with impulse and mood issues. Countless lives and families are affected because a man who, like Derek, who was just a boy who learned how to fight to earn, earn his dreams of playing in the NHL, and he just wanted to protect his teammates and entertain fans, basically ended up injuring their brain irreparably. It just makes me wonder if I should stand up at the game during a fight. I know that one of the doctors who diagnosed Derek's CTE at Boston University said he can't seem to bring himself to stand up at a fight at Bruins games anymore. But I will say, finally, that as I always do, go read this book. But I'll say this time uh, a little bit differently that I say you need to read this book. You don't just go read this book. You need to read this book. If you're a hockey fan, you need to challenge your view on fighting and hockey and see if you come out on the other side the same. That's the genius of the story that John Branch tells in Boy on Ice. Well, that's it for this week's episode. I really want to thank John Branch for giving me access to a Pulitzer Prize-winning author with the humility to help out a fledgling prognosticator like me. If you're listening, John... Thanks, brother. I really appreciate it. Also, I hope you learned something and challenge yourself to think about what the effects of head injuries are in the NHL. I can tell you that Derek was not the first and will not be the last time we take a look at the effects of CTE and of head injuries in general. But for now, let's just try and remember the people behind the sport who often pay a pri price that we may never see. But looking ahead to next time, I figure after the last two books, we probably should lighten the load a little bit and tell a great hockey story that I loved from one of the best ever. So that's why for next week's book, we'll be taking a deep dive into Orr, My Story by Bobby Orr. Oh, and as always, here's the shameless reminder that if you like what you've heard, please subscribe on your favorite spot for podcasts and make sure to give the show a follow on Instagram or Twitter. Most of all, though, take care of till next time and stay ho classy hockey fans. Good day. <laughs>